0: Revelation, Chapter One, and uh, tonight we will finish Chapter One, Lord willing. (laughs) Revelation, Chapter One, picking up in verse seventeen. John writes, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Perhaps you heard about the young woman who was beginning a relationship with a young man, and their phone conversations extended for hours. But they seemed to be only one-sided. As the young girl would go on and on and on and, and, and continue talking about all of the things that she was interested in and that she liked to do, and, and, and on and on she would go while patiently the young man would listen. And then finally, after going on and on for several minutes about herself, she finally paused for a second and she said to the young man on the other side, you know, that's enough about me. Let's talk about what you think about me. (laughs) The truth of the matter is that all of us are born into a very egocentric universe. We are the very epicenter of everything that concerns us. Everything exists for us. At the very base core of our human nature, we believe that. That the most important thing is me. My needs, my interests, my desires. That everyone else, therefore, must also be thinking about me what I'm wearing, and how I'm doing, and the way I said that, that they go home and they only think about the way I am doing and the way that I am performing things. And we even believe that if there's a God, even God exists for me and for my sake. Then we get saved, and we learn that there is a God, and that we aren't the center, but we carry our egocentric stance into our salvation, into our Christianity, We realize and we figure that God loved me enough to save me. And then we figure that, well, hey, the Bible says that God's thoughts towards me are for peace. That God has a purpose for my life. And that his blessings and his promises are for me. And that God wants to bless me. And so we are very egocentric in our birth humanly. And we kind of carry that concept, that attitude, into our Christianity. And it's very hard to break free from the kingdom of me, isn't it? We find that it's a a, a constant struggle, that reality that we struggle with in this. Now, it is true that God loved us enough to save us, that He loved you enough to save you and me. It's true that his thoughts towards you are for peace and not for evil. It's true that he has a plan for your life and that his will is good towards you and that he desires to bless you. All of that is true within your life. However, perhaps you've discovered, as I have through the years and am continuing to as I walk with the Lord, is that he doesn't consult me before he begins to do things in my life that maybe I don't like. (laughs) He doesn't ask my permission about the particular ways in which he chooses to lead me. And he makes decisions without consulting me. And and, and sometimes he, he leads us in ways that we don't agree with. And he does things in our lives. He allows things to happen that we are outright in rebellion against that we don't like it. And we find that God doesn't seek the government of me Before he makes decisions of things that he wants to do within my life. And we can begin to kind of find this battle that begins even in the midst of our salvation. In the midst of our Christianity, there's kind of this civil war that begins to take place within us. Now we're all smart enough to know that we can't rebel against God and win. That There's no way we could ever declare war upon the kingdom of God and that somehow our brilliant strategy is going to overcome the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We're smart enough to know that. We know that we can't turn away from the Lord, walk away and live. There were many that did. You recall when Jesus made that statement about his flesh being food and his blood being drink and many turned away and Jesus asked his disciples, will you turn also? And they said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. But inside this battle sometimes can begin and we can start to think, well, maybe I didn't know what I was getting into, but at the same time I know I can't turn away from God and live, that there's no life apart from Him. Yet I am fighting this thing because God isn't doing things within my life the way that I think He should or the way that I hoped He would. He's doing it that way. And so what happens is, in the midst of this battle, we begin to kind of follow God at a little bit more of a distance. We don't walk away. We don't turn away. We don't enter into a war against God. But we kind of back off a little bit. We say, whoa, wait a minute. Maybe I'll just take a few steps back so I can at least brace maybe for some of the things that might be coming my way, the unexpected that God doesn't consult me about. Or we begin to think within our minds... I will go further when God begins to, and then fill in the blank. You know what a, what we expect that God should do, or what we hope that God will do within our lives, and we begin to kind of play this leverage game with God, where well, I'll do if you do. And there's this battle that's going on, this war that can take place even in the midst of Christianity, where maybe there's no other sin present, but yet there's a battle of the will taking place between the kingdom of me and the kingdom of Christ that's within me. It's a battle of my plans versus His plans for my life. A battle of my goals versus His goals and desires for my life. A battle of my will against His will. And at the very core, it's a battle of my kingdom versus His kingdom. And it's a very real thing That we carry with us into this Christianity that we're in. The egocentric kingdom of me. And it fights against the Christ-centered kingdom of God. And there's kind of this battle that can take place. The problem is, there can be no bipartisan rulership within your life. There can only be one king because there's only one throne. And your heart, unfortunately, was not created to operate as a democracy. God doesn't ask your permission, though he takes your input. And he doesn't consult you before he does the things that he does in your life, even though we know that his plans, the Bible declares, are for good within us. And so this war happens. And in order for any person who calls himself a Christian... To receive from God the things that God desires to do within their life, they must yield complete control and operation to the King of Heaven and become Christ centered instead of me centered. Your kingdom must fail. Now, we think, in all of our brilliance, you know, and all of our majesty and everything, we think that we have pretty tight reins on the leadership of our life. Sometimes we think that God is too busy to really take full control of me that I'm the one that has to drive and you know he kind of leads like a shepherd but I'm really the one that's in control and I know what I'm doing. I have tight reins on this thing. My leadership is sufficient and, and, and God is even maybe a little bit impressed with some of the decisions that I make. That God maybe is a little bit even in awe of some of the wise choices and moves that I make as I lead myself or follow his leading through this life that we have. There was once a monarch who heard of another monarch who exceeded her splendor, her glory. She was a queen of a very prominent region in the southern portions of Africa. Her glory was well known. Her riches were vast and her empire was great. But she heard word that there was a king who excelled in glory, whose riches and honor and wisdom in abundance were greater than hers. And so she, hearing this and being somewhat troubled by it, decided, I need to go and see who this king is. If his wisdom really is as great as the rumors I have heard, if his splendor, his majesty, his glory, his kingdom really could possibly exceed mine. And so she gathered her caravan and her riches and everything that she had, and she began to make her way up to the northern regions of Israel where this young king, Solomon, had taken over the reins of his father David. And the Bible tells us what happened when this monarch came. 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 1, it says that when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to prove Solomon with hard questions at Jerusalem with a very great company, and camels that bear spices, and gold in abundance, and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. And there was nothing hid from Solomon which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, and the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, And the sitting of his servants, and the attendants of his ministers, and and their apparel, his cupbearers also, and their apparel, and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in mine own land of thine acts and of thy wisdom, howbeit I believed not their words until I came And mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the one half of thy greatness, of thy wisdom, was not told me. For thou excellest or exceedest the fame that I had heard. This monarch, this woman, this queen of Sheba, who was so glorious in her kingdom, in her majesty, in her splendor, heard of this king. And as she went to see him, thinking in her mind that no way would his riches match hers. No way would he be able to stand before her as he saw her approaching with all of her camels and their their clothing and the caravan that was carrying her as she went. But as she came, she was surprised to find that this monarch, this Solomon, this young man of whom she had heard, that the glory and the power and the majesty of his kingdom was so great that not one half of what she had heard was enough to declare the greatness of this King Solomon and it tells us that there was no more spirit that was in her. The Apostle John in our text here in Revelation, as he sees the glory, not of Solomon, but the greater than Solomon, as he sees the glory of King Jesus eyes as a flame of fire, his head and his hairs white like wool, his feet as though they burned in a furnace, his body clothed with a garment down to the foot, the sound of his voice like the sound of many waters, his mouth coming forth with a sharp two-edged sword, and he sees this glory and he's overcome by it. He tells us that in the presence of this majesty that he fell at his feet as dead. He says in verse 17, Revelation chapter 1, that when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. John tells us, when I saw him, I fell. The kingdom of John fell. The egocentric kingdom of me was conquered when he saw the splendor and the majesty of Of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. At that point, there was nothing left in John, no strength to stand upon. No righteousness or glory. In the presence of his majesty, of his matchless power, of his radiant glory, of his perfect love, and of his overwhelming presence, he drops to his knees in a way that he had never done previously. Now, John had known Jesus for probably more than 70 years at this point. He he leaned on Jesus' breast there at the Last Supper. He, He called himself the apostle that Jesus loved. He saw Jesus transfigured there in Matthew chapter 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus was glorified in his presence. He was there as he walked upon the water and with his words he stilled the storm and caused the waves to cease. He was there at the resurrection when Jesus had risen from the dead in the glory of God and by the power of the highest, defeating sin. He understood the blood and the cross. He was there throughout all of it. And for 70 years, he had seen the power and the faithfulness of King Jesus in his life as he walked and lived and served before him. Countless unknown experiences that aren't even written down in the scriptures of how John had fellowship in reality in the true and the living God. And yet it's here at this time, over the age of 90 years old, on this deserted island of Patmos, in absolute isolation, that for the first time ever, he sees Jesus in his full glory. In the full power of his majesty. In the full splendor of his glory. And it tells us that he fell. That anything that was left of what his kingdom stood for, The kingdom of John, that is. Anything that was left of who John was in all of his glory and his prominence fell there before Jesus Christ when he saw him and died. He tells us, I fell at his feet as dead. In the presence of the King of kings and the God of gods, there remained nothing left in John. And everything that he was was instantaneously devalued all of his reputation as the Apostle John. Remember, he's the last living Apostle at this time. There are no others. Of the 12 that were there, John is the only one that left. And you can imagine what it must have been like when they carried John, because he couldn't walk at this point according to tradition, when they carried him into a town, into a village, into a church. You can imagine the holy hush. As they brought him up to the front of the church to address the group of believers, the reputation that he carried as being the last living apostle of Jesus Christ. And John, no doubt a man of great humility, but also aware of who he was in the presence of these people. At that point, as he stood before Jesus, it died. It meant nothing. The apostle John, nothing, garbage. All of the admiration that he might have had from his peers forever being able to boast as being the only one that was there at the cross. The only one that watched the blood drip down from the toes of Jesus and be buried there into the dirt and John beholding it with his eyes. But all of the glory that that may have afforded him or all of the esteem or the reputation that he had from his peers in it died as he knelt before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Every sense of entitlement that John might have had because of the great sacrifice that he had afforded the Lord for, through his life died. Any sense of that I deserve this from God because of what I've given up for him, at that point as he saw the King of Kings, there was no claim that his kingdom could make upon the kingdom of God at all. All of the hope that he may have had for a reward for his service as he saw Jesus in the fullness of his glory instantly Just diminished into nothing, into thin air. What am I worthy of? What have I done for him? What have I given up? What service have I rendered that is of any profit or any value to a king of this stature and this majesty? Vanished. In that point, it's gone. All of the righteousness that he might have possessed and all of the worth that he held, if there was any, within himself, at that point, as he saw Jesus in his fullness, it was gone. He fell at his feet as dead, and he instantly became nothing as he laid prostrate before the glory of Jesus Christ. And as many times as John had previously given himself over to Christ, as many times as I'm sure it was countless throughout his life that he would sing a song like we sing, like I surrender all, Many times, as he would lay down his life and say, God, I belong to you, I am yours, it had never ever happened like it happened this day at this time when he saw Jesus for who he was in his fullness. He died in that place. None none of that ever could compare to what we're reading here. And I can only imagine what's going on within his mind as he sees this vision and he's overcome by the presence of Christ. What is he thinking? We have no idea. We leaned on Him. We heard His words. Yeah, we saw the miracles, even the transfiguration. But none of that could do justice to who He truly is. And at that moment, I'm certain that the vast difference between the glory He was seeing presently in who Christ was and the plainness of His humanity that He had seen physically all those years ago, that the vast difference between those two things short-circuited the heart and the mind of the Apostle John and he breaks before the Lord Jesus Christ and he falls prostrate before him, unable to move without strength. His kingdom raises the white flag to the kingdom of Christ as he reveals himself to him there. His dominion is revealed for the landfill that it is and his righteousness is manifested as a pile of filthy rags before the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't the first time that someone has seen the glory of God and the word that we read about and something like this has happened. Perhaps you recall the prophet Ezekiel, a young man carried away into captivity and God has something for this young man and God reveals himself to Ezekiel. And as Ezekiel, early in his life and early in his ministry, sees this vision of the glory of God, the account that he gives us in chapter 1, verse 26, it says that above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne. And as the appearance of a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. And I saw as the color of amber and the appearance of fire around about within it. From the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. Ezekiel, seeing a similar vision, much less, of course, than what John saw, but even a fraction of the same, as he stands there before him, everything that was in him fell to the ground as he awaited the voice that would speak with him. Not only Ezekiel, but the prophet Daniel testifies of when the glory of the Lord was revealed to him. In Daniel, the 10th chapter, the 4th verse, it says, In the four-and-twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river which is Hiddekel." Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of euphaz. His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, Uh, But the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore, I was left alone and saw this great vision and there remained no strength in me. For my comeliness, or my beauty, was turned in me into corruption and I retained no strength. Daniel tells us not only that he fell before the Lord or was overcome by it, but he says that everything in me that could be esteemed as beautiful, everything that people might say when they look into my life and they see the godly attributes, the good characteristics that I have, the compliments that they give me about how holy I am or how well I've conducted myself through the years of my ministering in Babylon, or the glory of how God has used my life in giving me the ability to interpret dreams and understand mysteries. Or the benefit of the prophecy that he's given me and how it's benefited everybody else. At that moment when he saw the glory of the Lord Jesus, everything in him that was beautiful was turned into corruption. That's just a nice political way of saying filth. That everything good about me in the presence of the King of Kings was nothing but filth. And ugliness and the result of it is that there remained no strength within me the kingdom of daniel dropped and raised the white flag to the kingdom of christ i think of the great man job a man who endured more affliction more difficulty and more trial than any of us can comprehend or understand who suffered more loss and more doubt and more questioning and more reasoning within his mind. But the Lord comes to Job. And for three chapters, the Lord questions Job and manifests his glory, not to the appearing of the eye, but to the understanding of the heart as he begins to enumerate to Job all of the attributes of who he is. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Were you there when I created Leviathan with his scales so thick that a sword can't pierce it? Were you there when I direct the paths for the lightnings? And as he just goes on and on and on describing the splendor and the glory of God, Job becomes lower and lower and lower. And Job, after God has finished, responds in chapter 42, verses 1 and on. And he says that Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou can do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered what I understood not, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. In verse 5, he says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes." That previously the kingdom of Job stood tall and confident. Before God, in his righteousness, a man who was righteous in the eyes of God. But yet his kingdom stood tall. But it wasn't until he saw the Lord, that he understood who he was, till the majesty and the might and the power and the glory of God was revealed to Job, that now Job said, that I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. His kingdom fell When the glory of God was revealed to him. And that is what John is experiencing here as he sees Christ for all that he is. He's no longer just a Bible story or something that we hear about in Sunday school. He's no longer just a a cultural figure that changed the course of humanity. He's no longer just a Jewish rabbi or a revolutionary or an influential figure in the cultures of the West. But rather, he is the only great and glorious God. And as John saw him there, he fell at his feet as dead. And listen to me, saints. This is what must happen in our lives if we're going to see God's best come through for us. If we are going to have Christ revealed to us in a way that our lives are going to bear real lasting fruit... And if we're going to experience Christ in a way where it's worth it at all to follow Him, then we must surrender the control of our kingdom to the control of Christ. The Bible declares very clearly that God is for us. The Bible declares that God can do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we can ask or think in our lives and in the things that concern us. And the Bible declares that His love towards us is immeasurable, that there is no Scale upon which you can weigh out the love of God that he has towards you. It is absolutely immeasurable and his resources are unsearchable. But as long as you and I seek bipartisan rulership over our lives, as long as we follow at a distance and we try to negotiate with him and come up with some term whereupon we can maintain some bit of control and not yield it to him, the Bible tells us that God will Wait. He won't cast us off. He doesn't strip us or withhold our salvation. But He will withhold the thing that He desires to do within our lives. To complete us. To make us what it is that He's made us to be. Isaiah chapter 30, verses 15 through 19. The prophet Isaiah puts it in this language. He says, Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord. And their works are in the dark. Actually, I'm in the wrong chapter completely. Well, maybe that was for you. But chapter 30, it's, For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest ye shall be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength, and ye would not. But you said no, for we will flee upon horses. Therefore shall ye flee. And we will ride upon the swift. Therefore shall they that pursue you be swift. One thousand shall flee at the rebuke of one, and at the rebuke of five shall ye flee, till ye be left as a beacon upon the top of a mountain, and as an ensign on a hill. As you take up the control of your life and say, no, we will not surrender to God, but we will flee upon the swift of the horses, God says, you will flee, but you will be frustrated in your fleeing you will find that you never come into the purpose of your existence. You never see the blessing of God upon your life in the way that you had hoped, in the way that you had thought. And so in verse 18, God declares, And therefore will the Lord wait. Why? That He may be gracious unto you. And therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. Thou shalt weep no more. He will be very gracious unto thee at the voice of thy cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer thee. But as long as you say, no God, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to lead and take the reins of my own life and I will seek your counsel and yes, I agree with your salvation. The Bible says that God will wait for the purpose that He might be gracious to you till you come to the point when you see Him for who He is and you lift up the white flag and you say, I surrender before you. You indeed are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But I also want you to notice here in the remainder of our time four things that Jesus does for John at this point when John falls prostrate before the Lord. Things that he's also willing to do for you and for me, for anyone who is willing to see him for who he is and surrender at his feet, fall before him. The first thing that we see is that John is given assurance of his salvation. Look look again back with me in Revelation chapter 1. Again in verse 17, it says, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me. Now, I don't want you to think when I say that he gave John assurance of his salvation, I don't want you to think that John didn't have assurance of his salvation. I think of all of the apostles that we read their writings in the New Testament, John was the one who was the most sure of his salvation. In fact, First John chapter 5 is where that famous verse is that says that these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. John constantly refers to himself as the apostle that Jesus loved. He knew Jesus' love for him. He didn't ever doubt it or think that he wasn't really saved in all of that. I, I think he was absolutely for sure. And you and I, we are not to live in doubt of our salvation. That's a horrible way to live. To constantly think, "Well, today he loves me because I prayed, but today, oh, God, I hope he doesn't come back today because I'm not ready. I didn't pray today." No, that's not how we're called to live. We're to stand boldly in our own salvation. Now, I'm not saying O.S.A.S. You know, once saved, always saved. You know, you, you. Get, I'm, I'm not preaching that. What I'm saying is that you personally have the authority and the boldness through Scripture to have confidence in your own salvation. And you can be assured of your salvation before the Lord. But I will also say this, that the closer you get to Christ, the more your wretchedness is revealed for what it is. And at that point, you can begin to doubt again. I don't know if you've ever been there. I have. You know, you see just a little bit more of a glimpse of the Lord. It's kind of like Peter. Remember, they're there on the boat. They've been going for a long time. Peter's got no doubt that Jesus loves them, all this stuff. But then Jesus says, you know what? You've been fishing all night. You caught nothing. Throw your net on the other side of the boat. And so Jesus, I mean, Peter throws his net on the other side. And he pulls out a a, a load of fish so big that he needs to call over the other boats to help him haul it in. And after they finally get this great hall of fish, in, he looks over at Jesus, who's probably smiling, you know, because he knows. And Peter looked at him and saw something in him that he'd never seen before, and he says these words. He says, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. And that happens when you see the Lord, when he's high and lifted up, and his glory is manifested before you, you realize how wretched and undone you are, and it can cause within you a holy fear. Oh, Lord. Who am I? Why would you be merciful to me? How could you possibly overlook the things that I've done? How could, how could anything pay the price? This great debt that my sin has caused. And you begin, begin as you see it, to, to become overwhelmed. And in awe of this holy God and his acceptance and his forgiveness for you. And John, no doubt, was feeling that sentiment as he saw Jesus in his glory and fell before him as dead. He had nothing. But it tells us that Jesus laid his right hand upon John. The right hand is the sign of acceptance. The picture is that of a gladiator who's been fighting, warring in a coliseum, in a battle, and the gladiator is defeated. He is done in. He's put to the point where the sword is pointed at his throat, and as the aggressor looks up and sees the king standing in the, in the you know audience, he waits for the signal. Will he be given the right hand, which means that the defeated can live? Or will he raise the left hand, which means that he will be slain? And here as John falls before the king of kings, as his kingdom surrenders all before the king of glory, it isn't the left hand of rejection, but it's the right hand of acceptance. Christ did not slay John there as he laid there before him. He didn't chide him for his humanness or embarrass him for his ignorance or laugh him to scorn. But rather, it tells us that he laid his right hand upon John, and John was accepted before Jesus Christ. That in spite of his humanness, and in spite of the rejection that he had received from the kingdom of Rome, and despite the dreariness of his circumstances, he's accepted by the glorified Christ. The second thing that he received from the Lord as he fell before him is consolation. Listen to the words that Jesus speaks as he talks to John. It says, He laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. He speaks words of comfort, not condemnation of consolation, not judgment and woe. Now, I am certain, I'm not certain about a lot of things, but I am absolutely certain that the Apostle John had more faith than I have. I'm very well aware of that. I'm sure of it. More confidence, more boldness, more knowledge, more theology, more experience. He had everything more than what I have. But I can say this. If I were John, I'm not John, but if I were John, and I was in isolation as he was, and I was banished on the Isle of Patmos where I couldn't preach to anyone, where I couldn't affect anyone, where I couldn't share with anyone, where essentially my life was over, but my heart was still beating, I would be a little discouraged. I know what I'd be thinking. I'd be thinking, what in the world is your purpose for this Lord?" how could it be that I'm on this island when I could be on the mainland doing your work and yet you've got me here on this island? I I would be thinking, what did I do? What did I do that I had to be set on the shelf like this? Why are you allowing this? Have have I become that much of a detriment to your kingdom and your purposes that you've got to put me on an island so I don't do damage? These are the things that I would think because these are the things I think all the time. You know, you get a flat tire, like, what did I do, you know? Just the way it is. You ever feel like that? You find yourself in a place within your life and you think, how did I get here? Lord, what is your purpose in this? How could this possibly ever work out to the good? This feels like not glory, but discipline. How how did this happen? And you begin to wonder, "How did how did I get to this place? It doesn't make any sense. And if I were John, I would be terrified. Not of hell, that I'd be going to hell, but rather of abandonment. I would be thinking to myself, he's abandoned me. He's left me here to live out my final days in isolation. Whereas he could have just taken me home or even allowed me to be martyred like the others. In some way, being able to bring glory to him through my death. But rather, here I am on this island where I can affect no one. Lord, where are you in all of this? But he speaks to John and he tells him these things. He says, I am the first and I am the the last. I am the beginning of all things, John, and I am the end of all things. I am the author of your life and of your breath and of your salvation and I am the finisher, the one who completes the work within your life. I am the one who started you upon this path that you're on. I'm the one that called you as you were in the fishing boat in that Galilean Sea and set you in this narrow way. And I am the one that will see you through to the end of this path. And I'm in control of your life along the way. There were none that were before me. And there will be none after me. And I am the one who lives and was dead for your sake. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I am not only the author of life, John, but I am the possessor of life. And every other thing will fade away whether it be your mission, your ministry, your passion, your hope, your ambition, your dream, whatever it is, it will fade. But I, John, am the everlasting God, and I'm your king, and I give you the right hand, and it will never fade or die. And then he tells John that he alone possesses the keys of death and hell. And I find that very interesting. I, I almost find it out of place. Well, why did you say that, Lord? You know, Did you have to bring that up at this time? Although he tells John, fear not. It doesn't mean that he isn't to be feared. He's a holy king. He reminds John and he reminds us that hell is a real place. Mentioned 23 times in the New Testament, Jesus spoke of hell as a real, literal, physical place that will not be uninhabited. The Bible tells us that it is a place of eternal torment, where the fire is never quenched. It's called outer darkness, a place where no light can enter in, and it's a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Peter describes hell as a place where there's chains of darkness, where the darkness is so heavy, so thick, and so real that it's as chains that bind the hands and the feet and restrict all movements. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 says that those that go there will be tormented day and night, forever and ever, that it's a ceaseless suffering. Luke chapter 16 gives us the account of a man who was in hell. And what we gain from that account is that while he was in hell, he was aware of where he was. He knew that he was in hell. That he was aware also of those that were in heaven. This rich man knew that Lazarus was in heaven. He was aware. He was somehow able to see from the place of his torment across this great gulf and have a vision of what was going on in the place of glory. We're told that he was exceedingly tormented in that place, so much so that he begged that just a drop of water would be given to cool the burning on his tongue. And he was told that escape was absolutely impossible, that there was no way at all to cross from where he was back either into the land of the living or into the glory of the kingdom of heaven, that it is an eternal place, and that the judgment to send somebody there will be final and eternal. Now, the good news is that Jesus told his disciples that hell was not created for people. It was never God's intention at all that any person should ever go to hell. But rather, it was created for Satan and for his angels. Therefore, it is not a place of correction, like some kind of a purgatory or place of punitive measures, but rather, it's a place of eternal judgment. Now, it was never intended for people... But neither was the plague of a sinful nature intended towards people. Jesus came to cure sin. His mission was to pay the penalty for all sin that was ever committed. The sin of a man as vile as an Adolf Hitler to something so minor, perhaps, as a negative word or a bitter thought that all sin that has ever been committed by any man was judged upon Jesus Christ, that he paid the price so that all sin could be forgiven. But the terms are that the invitation must be accepted. That as he extends to every man, woman, and child that ever lived the opportunity to turn to him and be forgiven of all sin, no matter how grave, that they can be eternally saved and their sin can be washed away and blotted out forever. But if a man, a woman, a child, if anyone rejects, that price, rejects that gift, that offer of eternal glory, then the only choice is for them to go to the place where their king will go, to, say, to, to hell with Satan. If the sin solution is rejected, then the hell problem remains. And Jesus tells John, I alone hold the keys of death and hell. That should provoke fear in the one that doesn't know Christ. But it should pro- provoke great comfort in those of us that are saved. Jesus speaks to John. He gives him acceptance with the right hand. He gives him comfort, telling him, John, I'm in control of your life. I'm leading the circumstances. And then the next thing he does is that he gives John direction. Notice this. I think there's a lot of people that are seeking direction from God within their life. It's interesting to me that at the time that John fell before Jesus Christ... Yielded control of his kingdom. But it was then that Jesus gives direction to John. In verse 19, he tells him, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. He gives John direction concerning what he's to do in the place where he is. That not only is God in control of the events surrounding John's life, but that he has a specific purpose for John within those circumstances. I find, in many instances, whether it's in my life or in someone else's, that a person will spend so much energy on trying to get out of their present circumstances that they'll never figure out what purpose God has for them in their present circumstances. They'll never realize it. They'll never come to that place because they want God to change it or they want to get out of it, and so they never discover why they're in it. It's interesting to me, the prophet Daniel was given great understanding. He was given a lot of of revelation concerning the things that are going to take place in the latter times, but yet he was told to seal up the vision and the prophecy, for it was yet for many days. Many of the other prophets received glimpses and little shadows and pictures of what God was going to do. But yet they couldn't understand it clearly. They couldn't understand the totality of the picture and what it was. And yet here, God had the intention to give to John the Apostle the entire scope, to show him the entirety of his plan for the last days and and, and in a sense, culmination of the whole purpose for planet Earth and what God was doing. He had a great plan for John, a great thing that he wanted to do. But what if John rebelled against the Lord. I don't want to be here in this place. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be in this isolation. I don't want to be in this God-forsaken place, in this God-forsaken circumstance. Might he have missed something that those through the ages long to know? And would we be sitting here now able to study it and look at it and learn it? I wonder, what purpose does God have for you in the circumstances that you're in now? And that thing that you so gravely long to get away from, that circumstance is so heavily burdening you that you spend your time and your thought, how do I get out of it? What is it perhaps that the Lord has for you that he wants to show you? But will you fall before his feet? Will you yield the circumstances? Will you raise the white flag and say, God, I belong to you. I'm a child of the king. Have your way. Speak, Lord, for your servant Listens. John did that, and he was given understanding concerning the situation that he was in, and he was given direction. And God is willing to do the same for us. And then finally, in verse twenty, John is given insight into his circum or the things that he has seen, the things taking place around him. In verse twenty, it says, "The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in thy right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars." are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now we'll talk more about what those things are and they signify in context of the book next week. But suffice it to say tonight, for what John is experiencing and for what God is speaking to you and to me, John has given insight into the things that he has seen. He, he's not just told what to do like he was in verse 19, but Jesus also explains to him the meaning of the things that he is seen. He's telling him what the things that he is seeing mean. Now, I'm not one of those people, and maybe you know someone like this, who believe that every single thing that happens has some deep spiritual significance. You know, someone sneezes, and you go, oh, that's God. God was in that sneeze. Did you hear when they sneezed? You know, I've I've known a lot of people like that. You know, I remember talking to a guy one time, and he came to me and he said, "I'm buying a guitar." And I said, "Oh yeah, why?" He goes, "Because I prayed." And I said, "God, do you want me to buy a guitar?" And as I was driving down the street, I passed Taylor Street. Taylor's a brand of guitar, you know. And he he's like, "So I'm getting a guitar. God told me." And I'm like, "Wow, you know, God's really with you. I wish God was with me like that." You know. I remember another time a guy, he 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 told me that he was in his bathroom and uh, he had invited someone to church and they called him that morning and said, oh, I can't go to church. And he said he was praying and he said, Lord, is that just a cover up, you know? And he looked in his medicine cabinet and there was a sticker on his deodorant that said, not a cover up, you know? And he said, well, thank you, God, for telling me that that wasn't a cover up, you know? And, so I was like, and, you know, there's people like that, that every single thing has this deep spiritual significance, you know, like you stub your toe, oh, my walk is suffering. You know, all that kind of thing, you know, and and now there are people that I like that, but at the same time, you can't deny as you read through the pages of scripture that there are times and including here that the things that you see or the things that you experience do have some spiritual significance within your life that they do actually mean something. The dreams that Joseph had were not just circumstance or coincidence. They were real. It was God doing something within his life. And God gave him direction through those things. The visions various times throughout Scripture that people had, whether it was Jacob with the ladder and the angels descending, or you know, countless times that you see this, there was a spiritual significance in something that was significant about what was happening. Sometimes it was just a common occurrence that took place in the life but yet there was something in the heart of the person that made them understand that it was more than that. Like when Moses saw the burning bush, he said there's a bush over there that's burning, but yet it isn't consumed. And he realized that he was seeing something that had significance, and he was given insight into what it was. And it happens, you read in the life of Elisha, there are many instances where, you know, the guy loses his axe head, and it was symbolic of something. The, the, the herbs that were put into the pottage were poisonous, and, and it meant something. And so, there are times, scripturally, but also in our lives presently, that things happen to us that do have some significance. And yet, it's Jesus is the one that makes sense of those things. As we yield our lives completely into his hand, he's the one that makes sense of it. He's the one that causes the circumstances and things surrounding our lives to make sense to us. So that we can understand where we are and where we're going. That's his will for our lives. Now the point of all that is not necessarily just what happened to John but it's what can happen to us when we completely yield our lives into the hand of Christ. We're going to close and the musicians can come. But I know that that there are many of you that are in circumstances that you don't understand. There's things that are surrounding your life right now that you didn't choose and you wouldn't choose them. There's paths that you find yourself being led down or brought down, maybe kicking and screaming. You can't understand why God's got you in that place or why he's allowing those things to happen within your life. There's situations that you can't fix, and there's things that you absolutely don't like that might even cause you to draw back and maybe say, okay, God, let's go back to the negotiating table because I didn't sign up for this. And some of you have withdrawn. You've subtly and slowly taken steps away from the Lord. Or maybe you're, even now in your mind, you're in the process. You're stepping away, drawing back. Listen to me. Listen to the word of God. Your kingdom needs to fail, to fall. Your glory, your majesty needs to fall before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There are some that call themselves servants of the Lord. They say, I'm servant of the Lord. I follow the king. I'm a soldier of the Lord. And they maybe are, but they're not really a servant. They're more of a subcontractor. You know, there, there, there's, sub, there's servants and then there's subcontractors. And the difference is that a subcontractor, yeah, they work for the, the big contractor. You know, they are a servant of the king contractor, if you would. But a subcontractor comes and goes as he pleases. A subcontractor negotiates the terms of his or her employment. A subcontractor kind of comes and does their thing and then disappears and they're gone for a while. And there's kind of a loose, kind of a touch and go connection when you have this subcontractor relationship. And there's many Christians that are just subcontractors to the Lord. Yeah, we serve the Lord. Yeah, I know him. And when he's got something for me to do, I do it, you know. And, and, and there's times when, you know, we, we, we do business, me and the Lord, you know, and that kind of thing. But it's really touch and go, and you know it. But then there's the servants. There's those that are there, that their eyes are forever beholding their king. Their lives are completely yielded into his hand, that they live to do his bidding, and that there is nothing else for them. They are not their own. They realize that they've been bought with a price. The Lord looks, his eyes run to and fro, even across this very room right now. And he knows those that are his. He knows those of whom have fallen before his feet and yielded control of their lives. And the Bible tells us that he waits. Just as he said to Isaiah, therefore, the Lord will wait. There cannot be bipartisan rulership in the life of any of the Lord's people. But if you will see good, and if you desire to see the blessing of God within your life, You must raise the white flag. You, as John, must see the Lord for who he is and fall before his feet in absolute surrender and allow the kingdom of me to be dissolved forever. As the worship team plays, the front of the church will be open. If you feel that that's you and that you need to fall prostrate before the Lord, that you see Jesus for who he is and you don't want to hear the words that you lived halfway for him, That you were just a subcontractor, touch and go. That you gave half your strength. Or maybe you gave none at all. Maybe there's some here that you should fear the one who holds the keys of death and hell. Tonight the Lord Jesus wants to reveal himself to you in a fresh and powerful way. For some of you he wants to lay his right hand upon you and give you the assurance of acceptance. To some, he'll speak words of comfort and say, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and where you are is right where I have led you to be. To some, he'll give you words of direction and instruction as to why and what you're to do in the thing that you're in. And to some, perhaps, insight into the things that are happening and why they're there. But you must first see him for who he is, a gracious, patient, powerful Lord desires to rule in your life and to bless you exceedingly, abundantly above all that you could ask or even think. In Jesus' name, let's all stand.